Let's go ahead and uh, open up to Esther chapter 9. We're finishing the book of Esther now. This uh, small little book that we find in the Old Testament that talks about the hand of God without mentioning the name of God. You know, there's going to be seasons in our lives where maybe the name of God is not so loud, it's not so clear, but the hand of God is still present in our lives. And it's His master plan as we were talking about even in the first week that we opened up to Esther. It is His master plan that moves now behind the scenes, orchestrates, that has His own plan for our lives. And sometimes we don't get what's taking place but the Lord is moving all the parts behind the scenes because He's so sovereign, He's in control. What did we learn even the first week that we opened up even to Esther that the constant theme in the book of Esther is that His ways are not our ways. And we see that through Esther. You see that through your life. Maybe in your life you, you have a, a painted picture of what is perfect, of where you want to be, but then you remind yourself that, that your, your ways are not the ways that, that God would think. And His ways are not your ways. His ways are perfect, number two. Right? And then lastly, that He makes all things work together for good. Well, now in Esther chapter 9 and 10, we learn that this, these people that were now scheduled for doom or for despair or for destruction, they go from destruction to deliverance. And what's amazing about that, it's that it's the Lord behind it. It's this, it, it. They go from destruction all the way to deliverance because God is using Esther for such a time as this. I mean, if you look at the news even today, I was reading some of the news and watched them even throughout the day of work today, and we see the division taking place in our government right now. You see how they want to, you know, raise accusations and now, now that the president is, you know, that the process of, of impeachment is really seriously being considered at this moment. If there was ever a time for us to think like we are the modern day Esthers and Nehemiahs and Daniels and Josephs, it would have to be today for such a time as this. You see what Esther really does, what it teaches, what she teaches us is, is one simple word. It's so simple, but at the same time, it's heavy, and it's commitment. Because Esther was committed to represent now righteousness in her time. I want to ask you, are you committed today to represent now righteousness in our time, in our day? Are you committed to that? You see, and I was praying about this and just going over the notes you know, at work earlier. And, and really, the Lord spoke to me very clear when it comes to commitment. And He said, Art, when it comes to commitment, it, it's not, it, it's sometimes, it's not that we're not able to, but it's that we're not willing. Sometimes it's not that you're not able to commit. You're very much so able to commit to what God's called you to do. But are you willing? Are you willing? Esther became willing. She said, I, I know that I'm able to, but past being able to, I want to become willing to do what God has called me to do. You know, and she becomes faithful, number one. She becomes accountable to Mordecai, number two. But she remains teachable, number three. Today, I want to encourage you that you would leave today knowing I want to be more faithful. I want to remain accountable so that I can remain teachable in the area that God has called me to do. Faithful, accountable, and teachable. You see, what happens now in chapter 9 of Esther is that now they're scheduled 
as the king had written a decree because Haman came with a secret agenda and motive and plan to destroy now the Jews because he hated that Mordecai would not bend the knee to him. And when you are standing up for righteousness and you don't bend the knee for the world in the worship of idolatry, guess what? People will hate you. Jesus told them, they're going to hate you. We, I think today we get so surprised that people don't like us. Jesus said, they're going to hate you. It doesn't get more clear than that. Because you're standing up for righteousness. And now here we see that they're scheduled for doom, but something happens that, that is pretty amazing because they see, the Jews see victory now. They see victory. They see deliverance instead of destruction. Why? Because God has orchestrated all the people in the right places at the right time for His sovereign plan to become accomplished now. Because one person said, I'm willing to be faithful, accountable, teachable, and on top of that, guess what? I am able and I'm also willing. Are you willing? Are you willing? I think willingness is so much more stronger than anything that you can possibly think that you don't have. How, are you willing though? A lot of times we think, I don't have the talent, but those that do aren't willing. You see, the best now ability, people have said it, is availability, but even beyond that, you, have, you may have availability, but you have no willingness. What does that do? It does nothing. You see, in Esther chapter 9, it says this, Now in the twelfth month, in the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. Do you remember here the decree? To be executed or to be actually done where the Jews were now to be destroyed? On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped, see, look at what the enemy hopes. The enemies hope to overpower them. The enemy right now has one strategy, and the strategies of Satan are very clear in the Bible. The wiles of the devil are very clear in the Bible. We have to be ready. He wants to overpower you. Do you see that in Scripture that he talks about that? He'll use your family to overpower you. He'll use your boss to overpower you. He'll use your doubt, your insecurity to overpower you. The enemy wants to overpower your children, your, your spouse, whatever it is that you're involved in, to overpower you. But it's very important here because the nation of Israel or the Jewish people, guess what? They knew that this day was coming. <laughs> they saw the decree. They knew that this day was coming. I think for all, all of us, this is a wake-up call. Sometimes we are so surprised that the enemy is coming after us to want to overpower us. You see, look at the, 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 the enemies of the Jews that had hoped to overpower them. But the opposite occurred. And what a statement, what an encouragement. The enemy wants to overpower you, but actually the opposite is going to happen. You're going to overpower the enemy, the Lord says. But the opposite occurred. That's amazing. When the enemy wants to do something in your life, but the opposite occurs. You know that that's sovereign and divine intervention in your life, that God is here standing on your behalf. And it says, and the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. What did they do? The enemy hated them. See, we have to get used to in the times that we're living in to be the minority and to understand that when you stand for righteousness now, in today's day, that, that, that's almost looked at as like a, a hateful attitude because you're not all inclusive. Because you're, you don't stand for the values and the morals of this world. So guess what? That's hate speech, what you're talking about. You see, and the enemy starts to say, you know what, we want nothing to do with you. 
Well, see, the enemy hated now the Jews, but the opposite happened. You see, how does the opposite happen here? Because they prepared, because they were proactive. I think it's very interesting when we are living our lives unprepared and we are not proactive, we try to react to the wiles of the devil. Most of the time when you react to the, the, the attacks of the enemy, guess what? You are now caught off guard. These people were not caught off guard because they knew this day was coming. Do you know that there is a day that is coming when the enemy is going to want and come and tempt you and, tr and try you and come and, and try to see you stumble? They knew the attacks were coming and they were unprepared. Why? Because they were interested in resisting the enemy. Is, are you interested in that today? Or is your interest in something else? When you're interested in resisting the enemy, that means I'm interested in pushing that way off of me. I'm interested in resisting the attacks of what the enemy is coming. That way temptation does not come my way and I am caught off guard or unprepared. It said, verse 2, the Jews gathered together. I, I, every time that we've been reading recently, we've been seeing how the Jews were gathering together or how the people of God gathered together or the church gathered together because there's so much power in unity. It's not the fact that, that God wants us just to get together to have a Bible study or just to, to, to enjoy ourselves in the fellowship. It's the unity that God wants. It three times in chapter 9 is going to say that the way that they overcame the enemy, it's because they gathered together. Well, you know what? I haven't been going to church. I haven't gone to prayer. I haven't been fellowship with the Christian believers, my brothers or my sisters, whatever it is. I haven't been responsive to, to what their invitation, to the conversations. However, when the enemy comes our way, we feel like we're so weak. Why? Because you haven't gathered together. And it tells us here very clearly in, in verse 2, And the Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the province of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because of the fear of them fell upon all people. Why could they not withstand the Jewish people? Because they were scared of them. It was fear. But what kind of fear did they have? It was fear. These, and the enemies had fear of God. Why did they have fear of God? Because these little weak Jews decided that they were going to stand for courage. They decided that they were going to stand now in faith. And that they were going to resist the enemy. You know what the best way to resist the enemy? James tells us in James 4-7. The best way to resist the enemy is to submit to God. You want to resist the enemy? Then submit to God. Submitting to God is the best way of resisting the enemy. James 4, 7 tells us, Therefore, submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. See, it's the times where you're close to the Word of God, submitting and obedient to the Word of God, that you can resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. The best way of resisting the devil is by submitting to God. It's by dressing yourself up with the armor of God. What's the armor of God? Sometimes we would ask yourself, how does that even look like an armor of God? What does that mean? The armor of God, it, it means that, that it is found in the Word of God. It's found in prayer with God. That's, that's when you start to get dressed with the Word of God, dressed in prayer. And then now the, every Christian soldier is able to step forward now with courage and with faith. And that's exactly what these people did. Because they knew that they had the king's permission. They had the king's permission here to fight against and to protect themselves. How do you feel if you know that you have the king's permission to protect yourself? It gives you courage. It gives you strength. It inspires something in you. I have the permission of the king to fight against 
the attacks of the enemy. And if the king is for me, then what matters who's against me? You see, the king here was for them, and why did it matter who was against them? Now, in Romans 8, 31, it says that God is for you. He is our king. He's our Lord. He is for you. Then what does it matter who's against you? Now, if he's for you, does that inspire any courage in you to stand up and to step out in faith and encourage? You see, what it says here in this very verse, verse th- uh, 2 and 3, is that because of fear of them fell upon all people. What kind of fear? It was godly fear. The non-believers started to fear God. So they understood that they were being overpowered now by the Jewish people. They had fear, godly fear. Why? Because they saw the courage of God's people. See, what's lacking in our world today is fear for God. That's why people make decisions that they make today. That's why they say the things that they say, because there's no more fear for God. And we can get mad at the world every single day because they don't fear God. But you know why they don't fear God? Have we given them a reason to fear God? The reason that they had fear right here is because the people gave them a reason to fear God. It was the courage of the the people. It was the faith of the Jews that said, man, we fear their God. Just imagine if someone looks at you at work or at home or or maybe your friends and they said, "I, I cannot believe the courage and the faith of that person. I must fear their God. It is so real, their faith, their courage, it's insane. So guess what? I fear their God. Sometimes we're we're so scared, we're living in fear. I don't fear their God, are you kidding me? If you want me to fear their God, there's no way I'm going to fear their God. Look at the way that they behave. When they see you standing and stepping up forward, so they can say, you know what? Because of their courage, because of their faith, they put fear in the hearts of the enemy. They gave them a reason to fear the Lord. Recently, have you given anyone a reason to fear the Lord? You know what? Because of that person's life, that person has given me a reason to fear the Lord. I fear the Lord because of that, that person. What does it tell us in 1 Corinthians 14? What did Paul say? Just imagine if an unbeliever comes into your gathering and he witnesses and he sees what's happening among you. He falls in his face, surrenders and confesses to God and he repents. Why? Because God is among you. It's not just a meeting. God is among you. It's not just a person that calls themselves a Christian. God is in that person. It's not just a person that goes to church. I know that person believes in a real God. You see, instead of living like conquerors, sometimes we're walking around like prisoners. And that's not the walk that God's called us to live in. God hasn't called you to be a prisoner of fear. He's called you to live in courage and by faith. What happens when you become a prisoner of fear? The world has no fear now. Of our God, have you given them a reason to fear the Lord? Verse 3, And all the officials of the province, of the satraps, of the governors, of those doing the king's work, helped the Jews because of the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Now all the officials who were under Mordecai or around Mordecai's peers started to help the Jews because they were scared of Mordecai. Mordecai had been promoted now, but he was promoted for a purpose. And how the tables have turned now on Mordecai. Mordecai was a man that was overlooked, but God promoted him in such a time as this so that all the officials were scared of him. They had fear of Mordecai. This is is pretty amazing in verse 3 because you start to see, think about today, how does that compare to today? The world here, the enemies of now the the, the church or of God's people here in in Esther 9, 
were scared of Mordecai. They were scared of those that were godly. Now today it seems more that those that are of the church are more scared of those that are of the world. And because we're so scared of the world, we start to try to become like them. And then it's so difficult to tell the difference between the two. <laughs> because we're so scared of the world. We're scared to stand up for boldness. It says here, you know what? Everyone else was scared of them, of Mordecai. And Mordecai uses authority. He uses position to do the will of God. He wanted to help the Jews. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread. The tables were turned and the tables were spread now for Mordecai. You see what happens when you remain humble? When you remain a, a man or a woman that seeks for righteousness? Throughout all the provinces for this man, Mordecai became increasingly prominent or powerful. The godless was scared now of Mordecai and Mordecai was not scared of the godless. Do not be scared of the godless. Don't try to be a respecter of the godless. Do not try to be accepted by the godless. Be liked by the godless. That's the problem. That we, we think sometimes in our mind that if we're liked by the godless, it's going to open up a way for us to minister to them. And that, that becomes very tricky. That can become compromising. That can water down now your testimony. Because you want to live to be liked by them with the notion of believing that once you're liked, once you're accepted, then your light's going to shine. <laughs> That's when your light is most sometimes dimmed. It is when you take a stand for righteousness like Mordecai did, that later on those godless people were saying, we need to help because we're scared of Mordecai. He was so powerful. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword. This is when you get victory. Gather together. Stand for righteousness. Stand for truth. Number uh, Verse 5. And they now defeated. They had victory over the enemies with the stroke of the sword, with the slaughter and destruction, and did what, the, what they pleased with those who hated them. They weren't trying to be people pleasers. They, they, they were outnumbered here. You're going to see here really quickly. But it speaks and it's a tribute to their faith and courage because it says, And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. You're going to start to see how many people they, out, they were outnumbered by. And every time they killed them, why? Because they were facing opposition. And through faith and through courage, they were able to step out. And also, verse 7, Par Sundatha, Delphin, Ashphatha, Poritha, Adaliah, Aradaitha, Parmashta, Arasaya, Aradai, and Vegezaitha. Don't try to say those names again. <laughs> Verse 10. And the sons, sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So they went and they killed Haman and his sons, but they didn't take, put their hand on the wealth or on the spoil. Why? Because they were in it for the money. They wanted to protect themselves. They were in it for the benefits, for the monetary gain. They wanted to protect themselves. Verse 11 says, And on the day the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to the queen, Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition 
it shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. Now, this report is brought to the king and to the queen, and the king looks at the queen Esther and says, look what has been taking place now. As we see here, now they have killed, now all these people, the Jews, have not been overpowered. Haman's sons are dead. Do you have any further requests? And whatever you ask, it's going to be done now. This was the day that they were supposed to all die. This was the day that the enemy intended for them to be destroyed. I mean, think about your life. It, was there ever a time where the enemy thought that you were going to be destroyed, but you overpowered the enemy by the grace of God? And now the day that once was to be remembered as the day that that was the end of me, was the beginning of me with God. Was the beginning of me in victory in God. Because look at what happens here in verse 13. She now has another opportunity to request something. And Esther, what does she do? She demonstrates wisdom by renewing her request. See, she's using this opportunity for the time. Sometimes we use the opportunity to say, all right, you know what? They're winning. Let me, you know, let me get comfortable. No, Esther says, let's renew now this uh, request. What is the request? Give them permission to do it again tomorrow. <laughs> you see, when the, the, the king, our king, our Lord, our Savior, hasn't only given you permission for victory today, He's also giving you permission for victory tomorrow. <laughs> Does that encourage you to wake up tomorrow? The Lord's already given me permission for victory tomorrow. Amen. And look what it says. And the Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted the Jews who are in Shushan should do it again tomorrow. Lord, thank you for the victory today. And Lord, give us permission to do it again tomorrow. You don't have to be scared when you think, look at what Esther's doing. She's planning for the future. Don't, don't you love this about Esther? She, she's a negotiator. He said, look, let's plan for the future. And she, what, she, what she does here is she's making a statement. She's making a statement, the enemy will not win here. She's making a statement, the enemy will not win here, not today and not even tomorrow. Have you made that statement? Look at the statement that she wants to say here. According, it says, tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. You know what she wanted? She wanted Haman's sons, the man that now planned for the Jews to be destroyed, his sons, his family, to be hanged in public. Why? To make a statement. The enemy has no power over us. That's what she was saying. When was the last time you made a statement that says the enemy has no power over us? You see, you know why she did this? Because she was concerned about the welfare of the people. And if you're concerned about the welfare of the people, you're going to make a statement. She said, not only do we want permission today, King, give us permission for victory tomorrow. And the permission was granted. Now it says, so the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. This was a warning to people. You know when you make a statement, it's a warning to people? This is a warning. I'm not, we're serious. We're not messing around. <laughs> the enemy's not going to win here. Well, we're not going to just let the enemy overpower us. You know what we do today in today's world? We want to let the enemy overpower us. Oh, you know what? I'm going to let the enemy overpower me. I want to let the enemy offer me this or offer me that or tell me in this way. And I'm just the victim now of my environment. That's not how God has raised you to be in His Word. To be a victim of the environment that you live in. You, we live in a fallen sinful nature. We already know that. The temptation is not going to get lighter. It's going to be stronger in the days that we're living in. 
Because of that, we should be ready to resist temptation. And the enemy, it says here now, they hang the ten sons and the Jews who were in Shushan, the second day, what do they do here? Gathered together again. On the 14th day of the month of Adar, you see how they're so committed to gathering together again? There's so much strength in being together. They gather together. And it says here, and they killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. They didn't lay a hand on the spoil. They didn't want to say, you know, we're going to come, take the enemy out, and also take their spoil. They're not going to do that. Because they didn't want to put their hands on something that God had not blessed. You see, when you get a victory, and guess what you want to do also? Put your hand right after that victory. Let me put my hand on something even if God hasn't blessed it. You better remove your hand right away. Because if God's hand's not in there, then your hand should not be there either. How many times have you put your hands in somewhere where God's hand's not there? They didn't lay, take the plunder. Verse 16, the remainder of the Jews in the king's province, verse 16, gathered together. Everywhere they were, they were gathering together. I think it's so amazing for me. It blesses me so much sometimes just uh, in conversation. My wife will tell me, oh, yeah, this person told me that while they were with this person, you know, just hanging out, spending time. You know, and I'm like, wait, what? What did they tell you? They, they were spending time together outside of church and in each other's homes or they went out and did something. Man, it's the biggest blessing to me ever to find out that, that people want to get together in the church. That's amazing. People should, you shouldn't want to get together with your family outside of just the church meeting, of just the gathering. Because there's unity, there's strength, there's encouragement, there's victory in unity. Do you see every time they said they gathered together right after it says that? It says that they, they killed, that they were victorious, and protected their lives. You want to be protected? Then gather together. Not only do you have victory in gathering together, you also have protection in gathering together. Verse 16, protected their lives and had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay hand on the plunder. Not only did they defend themselves, they protected themselves, they gained relief, they gained rest. Verse 16, and again, they did not lay hand on the plunder. No compromise. Victory followed by no compromise. What would happen if we said, if we want to live for victory, followed by no compromise? You know what it would lead to? More victory. And it should be led to followed by more, no compromise. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th month they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. Now what do they do? After they get these victories on the second day, on this, in this month, that they were destined for destruction... They start to have a feast and, and rejoice and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well, on the 14th and on the 15th of the month. Man, are you guys serious? You guys want us to meet every single day? <laughs> they assembled together now. On one day after another, after another, after another. Why? Because they understood the importance of the unity and the deliverance that was taking place. And they rested and made it a day of feasting and of gladness. They rejoiced together and they threw a celebration that they were not destroyed, but they were delivered. Why is this celebration so important? We're going to see here right now. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwell in unwalled towns... Unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday. 
and for sending presents to one another. They said, you know what, we're going to stop. This is a holiday. Do not work. Let's rest. Let's send presents to one another. This is a, a reason to celebrate. To establish among them, verse 21, that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15 days of the month of Adar. These are the two days in which they overpower the enemy. Every now year they would stop. This is a holiday. We're going to give each other gifts. We're going to give each other presents. I think there's something special every time someone reminds himself, you know what, 15 years ago, the Lord delivered me. You know, we, we heard the testimony even of, of Noemi that she shared with us even in the back. You know, she says, you know, next month I'm going to be, you know, I forget how many years you told me. How many years? Three years sober. That's amazing. Praise God. Why? Because you, you, we, we are remembering the deliverance of what the Lord has done in our lives. Man, I, you know, 10 years ago, we gave our life to the Lord. Three years ago, we stepped out in faith. Why? You're remembering. You're remembering what the Lord did for you. And it says, And as the days in which the Jews had a rest from their enemies, as the month which had a turn from sorrow to joy. Think about the month. That God turned your life from sorrow into joy. Think about the time that you were going out. And you were going to do something that was going to temporarily fill that pain and that void in your life. And all it would do is you would wake up in the morning and feel the same pain and feel the same emptiness. It would do nothing to you. You thought that you were temporarily covering that, 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 that pain and numbing that area of your life. It would do nothing. But think about here what it says in verse 22. It says, it turned from sorrow to joy for them. From the morning to a holiday. From a day of mourning to a day of holiday. That month that they should make them days of feastings and of joys. Of sending presents to one another and of gifts to the poor. You know what it reminds you of? It reminds you to not only to celebrate the faithfulness of God, but also to be able to serve one another. When you think about what God has done in your life, does it not make you want to celebrate the faithfulness of God and also serve one another? How can I not celebrate God's faithfulness thinking about what He did for me? See, they, and look what happens after this takes place. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Mordecai sent them a letter and said, Every single year, these two days out of this month, you're going to stop and you're going to give gifts to one another, give gifts to the poor, and you're going to celebrate that God you know, stepped in when you were destined to be destroyed. He delivered you. Every single year, you're going to celebrate this. Do you remember when the Lord took you out? Maybe write it down in your Bible and say, Lord, thank you so much. Because four or five years ago, I was lost, but then I came into the family of God as I received your grace and love. It says, because Haman, verse 24, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and to cast per, that is lot, to consume them and to destroy them. He cast here what is called per or lot or a fate. They would throw dice and say, you know what, as a form, almost of what like dice is today and they would say you know what one month is it that we're going to destroy these people and 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 they cast per or fate in regards to now the future of the jews but it says but when esther verse 25 the enemy tried to annihilate but when esther the enemy tried to annihilate but when your name but when John, when Mary, when David, when Joseph, when Jose, when Jonathan, when Gabriel, 
But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur, or the name Fate, that they were destined to a now sorrowful or destructive fate here in verse 26 of this letter which they had seen concerning this matter of what had happened. And the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves that their descendants, their children, their generations, their family, their descendants, and all who would join them that without fail, without fail here it says, they should serve and celebrate two days every year according to what's written, instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city. These days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. What do they want to do? They want to pass this along to their descendants. One of the most powerful and beautiful things that you can pass along to your descendants, to your family, the most powerful, most meaningful legacy that you can pass on, the best tradition that you can pass on is your faith in Jesus Christ. Is your faith in Jesus. And the reason why they wrote this even in writing is because it's easy for a new generation that's coming after the generation that went through the struggle, that went through the, the suffering to get that blessing. It's easy for a new generation to come and take for granted the blessings that the previous generation had a struggle and sacrifice to attain. I mean, we are living in one of the most, and I, and I say it myself, being part of this generation, in the, one of the most ungrateful generations that we have ever seen. Where we no longer are grateful for the generations before us of the blessings that we have. Because the generations before us struggled and sacrificed to attain. You think about that. That's the culture that we live in today. Warren Worsby said of this, he said, the church is always one generation short of extinction. If we don't pass on to our children, our grandchildren, what God has done for us and our fathers, the church will die of apathy and of ignorance. If you don't pass on what the Lord did in your life to your kids and to your children and to your nephews and to your nieces and to those in your circle of, uh, uh, of people and to the youth that are, ra are being raised up right now, guess what? The church will die of ignorance because they don't know what God has done. In Psalms 34 verse 11 it says, Come you children, listen to me. Come children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come and listen and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come and listen. You see, there's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. And I love this because I heard this, this theologian say this. I can't remember who it was. When it comes to tradition, we all have our own traditions. You know, in Thanksgiving, we have this tradition. We've always done this. You know, people, we, we protect that tradition. In Christmas, we, we do this and we protect that tradition. But what about the tradition of faith? Where you protect that tradition. And you would say, well, well, you know what? Tradition is, is so religious. No, what well, traditionalism is religious. And I love what this theologian said. He said, tradition is a living faith of the dead. It's our heritage, the living faith of the dead, the heritage, the tradition. But traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. It's just going through the motions. It's just religion. 
traditionalism, it's the dead faith of those that are living still. You see, when your faith is living, you can pass that along to someone else and you can face the future with a reminder. Are you facing the future with a reminder? Are your children, our children, our, our church, are they facing the future with a reminder of what God has done? Because when you face the future with a reminder, guess what it does? It teaches you to look to the Lord. That's exactly what was happening here. Those that, that don't remember the past, when you don't remember the past, we, we are really condemned to just relive it again. You think about someone where, you know what? The Lord rescued me from this. The Lord saved me from this. I was such in pain. I was, I was in agony. I was in despair. I was on my knees. I was crying. I was sobbing. I was heartbroken and all of it. And the Lord restored it to me, all of it. We don't remember where the Lord took us from. And guess what happens? We get comfortable when we go right back to it. Those that don't remember the past are condemned to relive it. I've seen so many people, specifically in the area of marriage, they come and ask for prayer. And we pray and we fast and we pray and we fast that the Lord would restore your marriage. And then the Lord restores the marriage. And guess what happens? Then you don't see that the couple ever again again. They're condemned to relive that same past because they forgot. They forgot the grace of God. Now verse 29, it says, Then Esther, the queen Esther, the daughter of Behuai, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and of truth. Think about this. This is words of peace and words of truth. This is words that would confirm the celebration that was going to take place. To confirm the days of Purim at the appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and the queen of Esther had prescribed for them. And they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of fasting and lamenting. Just like they had written about fasting and lamenting, they had also decrees. They had now these, these now written documents that they would not forget. I'm not going to forget. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim. It was written in the book. Has God confirmed it to you? When He confirms it to you, guess what? He wants you to remember it. God doesn't want you to forget His confirmation. You know what happens when we're, we don't forget what He's confirmed? We get confused. And God is not a God or an author of confusion. He's an author. He's a God of confirmation. How do you find that? You find that in the Word of God. Do you see here in, in throughout the nine chapters that we've studied of Esther is God arranging everything? God is arranging everything. And God's arranging everything in your life right now. You might not know it. He's arranging it. Well, how is it that He's arranged this? You would ask yourself. He arranged it. Believe it. <laughs> He's arranged it for a reason. You see, to think about it in chapter 1, God arranged that this queen would lose her place. Only so that he can have a queen step in and her name would be Esther. And God arranged for a competition to be to replace that king. God arranged for Esther to enter the competition. God arranged also for Mordecai to have access to both Esther and the affairs of the kingdom. He was standing outside of the gate. Do you remember that? God also arranged for a lot to be thrown for 11 months to pass by before the destruction or the day of destruction of the Jews now, before this evil event. God arranged that time. 
God arranged that a decree that would command that the Jewish be killed by the private hands instead of the enemy of, of the Persian Empire. God arranged that even as well. God arranged for Haman to restrain his anger and not kill Mordecai immediately. Think about it. Haman could have just killed Mordecai, but he chose not to. And it led to this grandmaster plan that God had. God arranged also for Esther to delay and say, I'm not going to say anything. So that she can say something at just the right time. But God was arranging these events. Do you know that God is in every event of your life? As long as you allow Him to. And He's arranging the events as He sees fit according to His timeline. We have a tendency of becoming very discouraged and very frustrated because we're looking at our timeline. And God says, you know what? Look to this. This is my timeline. God has His own timeline. And just because it's not arranged the way you want it doesn't mean He's not doing it the way He wants it. And it's easier said than lived. <laughs> but it brings us peace when we see it take place in, in the Bible. Now, let's read chapter 10, these, very, these three verses. It says, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. King Ahasuerus continued to become prominent and powerful. And he now put taxes against the islands and the seas and all the acts of his power and the might of the account of the greatness of Mordecai not only the greatness of the king Abiseris but also Mordecai continued to grow in power to which the king advanced him think about this Mordecai had a heart for the people and the king what did the king do? advanced him Lord advance me you want him to advance you? it's only the king that advances you the king advanced him. He didn't advance himself. The king advanced him. This is still the Lord. The Lord will even use a non-believer to advance you because he wants to accomplish his purpose. And it says here, Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Historically. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second to the king Ahasuerus. This man, he went from a nobody, from a person that was overlooked. From a person whose reward was delayed to a person that was second in command at the end of the book of Esther. Do we remember that God's delays are not God's denials? This man ended up to be second in command. And it says, and he was great among the Jews and well respected. I want us to, to pay attention to this because it says that he was second in command and he was in, held in high esteem. He was well respected by the multitudes of his brethren. Why was he well respected? Why was he well received? Why was he in high esteem? Because he had a great name? Because he had a position? Because he had power? It had nothing to do with that. People don't care about that. They don't care about your title position. It says here, because he was seeking the good of his people and, seek, and speaking peace to all countrymen. What a patriotic man Mordecai was. He was seeking the good of the people. He was seeking the good of himself. Sometimes we think they're going to hold me high esteem if I seek the good of me. Mordecai said, I'm going to seek the good of people and I'm going to speak the peace to all countrymen. He didn't forget his roots. He stayed humble and he met the needs of the common people. He continued to work for his people. He was seeking the good and speaking the peace. Are you seeking the good today and speaking the peace of people? Seeking the good for them and speaking the peace of them. 
Not seeking what's worse for them and speaking bad about them. <laughs> when it, here, Mordecai was so well accepted because it said in the New Living Translation, because he continued to work good for the, his people and to speak up for the welfare of his descendants. Speaking up for the welfare of his descendants. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Because we see here what Mordecai's ministry became. In Isaiah 1.17, it talks about the welfare of the people. It talks about undefiled and pure religion. You see, in Isaiah, during the time of captivity, the prophet Isaiah speaks to the people on behalf of the Lord with a prophetic voice saying, your meetings are worthless. They're meaningless to me now. Why don't you do this? The same thing that Mordecai was doing. Isaiah 1, 6, 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. And plead for the widow. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Isn't this what Mordecai did? He was seeking the good and he was speaking the peace. Would you, would you, can we leave with that tonight? Lord, today we want to seek the good of the people and speak the peace of all of them, all, all our countrymen. Think about this, countrymen. You know what's the worst thing that, that we as a church do? Speak bad about our countrymen. It is very distasteful. When Christians speak bad about their countrymen, it's extremely distasteful. Because that's not, that's not what God called you to do. It's so sad when you see Christians, you know, not only the Christians, but their children speaking bad about their countrymen. Why, why, why are they doing that? Because that's what they were taught. Instead of passing that on to our children, can we not pass them on what God has done in our lives? So they would be raised up as men and women that love God, that seek the good and speak the peace. Seek the good and speak the peace. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this book of Esther. We ask, Lord, that maybe tonight, Lord, we've been in places, God, in our lives, God, where we don't really understand why we're here. And for you, that's perfect. Because you don't want us to understand sometimes, Lord. You just want us to trust. I pray, Lord, that you let us be willing to be committed. It wouldn't be about, are we able? But it would be, are we willing? Are we willing to seek the good of the people and speak the peace of the people? And we pray this all in your name, in Jesus' name. Together we said,